This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by HostGator.com. Do you need to launch your own website? If you're looking for one of the easiest ways to register, host, and build your site, you should check out HostGator.com. They have tools to help you get started immediately, whether you're transferring a domain or building your site from scratch. So, you know, all you fans who want to open up, here's a look at my robotguts.com or drcorbyforever.net or kenissecretlyarobot.org. You can just head over to HostGator.com and have that up before we're done with today's episode. Speaking of DrCorbyForever.net, a .net address is the best way to get a good domain name these days. Grab your .net today. It gets better, though. HostGator has 24-7 tech support on the phone, live chat, or email, and you can choose from shared or dedicated servers. All that plus packages that include unlimited storage and unlimited bandwidth. Order now with the coupon code MISSIONLOG, and you'll get 30% off at HostGator.com. Now entering Nerdist.com. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 65, Plato's Stepchildren. Welcome to another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion. And Ken, I don't know if you know this, but uh, I just made you say that. What do you mean? With the power of my mind. I made you say the intro, and I also just made you ask me what I meant. Okay, John, you do not have mind control power uh, to, you know, make me say what you want me to say. Yes, I do. I just made you say that, too. Great. I just made you say great, too. Yeah, do you want to make me say uh, what we do here every week, each week? Wait, wait for it, and go. (laughs) Each week on Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, we watch one episode of Star Trek, try to take it apart and find out the messages, morals, and meanings of that show, and whether or not that particular episode stands the test of time. This week, you may have been able to tell, is about somebody being a jerk to someone else. And I'll let you decide which one of us, you know, is being which to the other. Actually, it's about uh, psychokinesis. A little bit of telekinesis and the ancient Greeks. It is, of course, Plato's stepchildren. Three cheers for them. Very well done, Ken, because you see, in any other circumstance, I could have made you dance or uh, sing a song or play a lyre. I am uh, I am tapping my foot incessantly here. Is that you or is that me? I <laughs> can't even me. tell. I can't even tell yeah. anymore. It's like a was it was that old you know that commercial? I don't know if it's you saying what I'm saying or me saying what you're hearing or something. <laughs> It was exactly that. Black and white perfume commercial over here. Oh, by the way, 80s references as well. Lots of those. Mm. So Mm -hmm. if this is your first time here, seriously, it's usually a little bit tighter than this. (laughs) Uh, And if it is your first time here, now is about the time in the show where we do trivia. That's also for all you people who this is not your first time here. So, uh, Ken, if you will indulge me, it's time for trivia. Go for it. Um, We would like to welcome back. Barbara Babcock. Uh, We just mentioned her in the Thulean Web. How about that? May I stop you for just a moment? It seems to me a while ago you said that there was one guy who played two different characters and that this person was sort of famous for that. No. And now it's like it's like every week it's like, oh, yeah, that person used to be that other person. No, no, here's the tricky thing. The, The tricky part is the actor who played the same character in two episodes oh, okay. so you have roger carmel as harry mudd and then you have dr mbenga and he is one of the only guest stars with with guest star credit to play the same character twice but of course you have people who came back over and over as different characters right, mark right. leonard and now you have barbara babcock and of course she just did the voice of the tholian and she was maya and all, all these other great characters but i'm glad to see her in this episode uh we also want to mention liam sullivan he played parman uh he had quite a good career in tv mostly playing these erudite smug bad guys um and he's he's got this great line that he said in an interview at a point so i just want to read it here he said playing truly evil people is a great way to release tension and anger and disgust with humanity show bad people what they really look like and act like and maybe they'll recognize themselves and change who knows i i would I'd kind of like to think that that were the case, but I don't know if I totally believe it, <laughs> but I, uh, I, I like his idea there. Um, 
This episode was directed by David Alexander, who has just two Star Trek episodes to his name. He passed away in 1983, and by the way, he should not be confused with Gene Roddenberry's biographer of the same name. The episode was written by Meyer Delinsky. He had just a few other genre credits under his belt, including The Outer Limits. And, uh, of course, we have to mention Michael Dunn, who played Alexander. Now, uh, he died at just the age of 38 in 1973. Uh, he was probably best known for his many appearances in the show Wild Wild West as Dr. Loveless. Um, I mentioned earlier the singing and dancing. Uh, you'll be glad to know that Leonard Nimoy wrote the song that he sings in this episode. He did not dance, though. Um, I don't know if you could tell that, Ken, in your uh, viewing of the show that that was, in fact, not Leonard Nimoy. I hate to burst the bubble and dispel the myth, but... Uh, well, the first not. little Tweedledum Tweedledee dance was him. Yes, right, right. But, but the, the, uh, flamenco the flamenco in Kirk's head yeah. was not. The flamenco near <laughs> Kirk's head. You know, no right. spoilers. Maybe on Kirk's head. We'll have to wait till oh. we get to the recap for that. Uh, we are. Hey, and I've got a great little piece of trivia here that was sent in by listeners. So thank you to listener Alice for pointing this out. There's a moment where Alexander just starts saying something really bizarre. And I, I'm not going to do it justice, but I'll try. Vrekekekex, coax, coax. And you just go like, well, what just happened? What? did he say was that just sort of like a, a spasm kind of introduced by parman what's going on here well it is actually a line from the play frogs by aristophanes and uh alice tells me how she figured this out uh that it, it was the the narrator in uh another story reading that play to his cats <laughs> which i thought was kind of funny uh it was from uh, cat who uh in this refrain from frogs, uh, uh, basically what you have is the frogs around the river sticks, or uh, um, yeah, the frogs around the river sticks as Dionysus is crossing into Hades to bring back Euripides from the dead. Uh, the play is a comedy, she points out, but in this context, it has a weird, eerie effect. So thank you very much for that contribution of trivia. How would a society with phenomenal cosmic power spend its time? Apparently by being a bunch of abusive jerks. Let's let Ken tell us more. Prologue. The Enterprise is responding to a distress call from an unknown planet. It's weird because Spock can find no signs of life on the planet, just heavy deposits of kiranide, a very rare and long-lasting source of great power. Kirk, Spock, and McCoy are greeted by Alexander. A diminutive fellow, Alexander introduces himself as a cross between a court jester and a whipping boy. He can sing, dance, tell jokes, play games, and he's a good loser. A very good loser. The people here are Platonians, followers of Plato. Their current philosopher king, Parmen, calls them Plato's children, though Alexander says they sometimes think of themselves as Plato's stepchildren. Parmen's sick, by the way. That's why you're here. While his problem started with just a scratch, it's not been attended to, and the infection is now massive. McCoy goes to administer a hypo, but the hypo is pulled from his hand by an unseen force. Parman is controlling it, apparently with his mind. There seems to be a lot of that sort of thing going around when Alexander argues to Parman's wife, Falana, that the men from the Enterprise should not be killed. He is forced into silence by her thoughts and is told that he talks too much. Act 1. While not from Earth, the Platonians have been there. They were there at the height of the Greek civilization. Though, when that fell, they lit out for a new planet where they could build their own idyllic republic. Spock and Kirk quiz Falana while McCoy works on curing Parman. The Platonians have had their psychokinetic power since they got to this planet. Alexander seems to be the only member of the 38-person society without such powers. Also, they're the product of a mass eugenics program, so they've never had need for a doctor. Not in the 2,300 years that they've been here. Eh, give or take. But a break or a cut in the skin? That can kill him. On his sickbed, Parman goes into a feverish fit. Objects are flying around the room, and high above, in orbit, the Enterprise is being shaken and buffeted. Kirk orders Scotty to get the ship away from the planet, but he cannot. Bones tries to dose Parman, but he gets caught in his fever brain grip. Parman is also beating the psychokinetic crap out of Alexander. During the drubbing, Alexander says they should let Parman die, that the rest of them will kill each other, trying to take his place. With Falana's help, McCoy is finally able to knock Parman out, and everything goes still. 
Kirk says it's time they get back to the Enterprise, though McCoy says he should stay until Parman's all better. Kirk says they'll all stay then, which saves Falana from the difficult, awkward, yeah, about your leaving. Shown to their quarters, Alexander tells them more about Plutonius. He's the only one without the power, brought here as a court buffoon and a slave. He's a throwback, just like Kirk and his people. Kirk says that doesn't bother him. They like not having psychokinetic powers. Kirk dazzles Alexander with the revelation where he comes from, size, color, and shape don't matter. And no one has the power. Bones comes in and says his cure for Parman worked. Not a moment too soon, says Kirk. Let's beam out. But Scotty says he cannot do that. Instruments are frozen and the Enterprise is still locked in orbit. Kirk says he'll take care of it down on the planet. Kirk quizzes Parman about why they are not allowed to leave and why his ship is trapped. Parman acts pleasant, but rankles at Kirk's tone. In no time, he's using his psychokinetic power to make Kirk slap the snot out of Kirk. Act 2. Back with the others, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy try to suss out why they cannot get in touch with the Enterprise. The way they see it, they will never be allowed to leave this planet. Suddenly, all three men are drawn against their wills to the court of Parman. There, they are given artifacts from ancient Greeks. Just a few friendly thank yous. Kirk goes straight to demanding the release of the Enterprise. Parman apologizes for his earlier behavior. He must have still been sick. Forgive me? Sure. Can we go now? Eh, soon, says Parman, but we'll need McCoy to stay here. McCoy says no, but here's the surprise. Parman won't take no for an answer. Spot calls them out on not being very platonic. Plato wanted truth, beauty, and above all, justice. Well, we've had to modify things a little bit, says Parman, but anyone here can do anything they want if their mind is strong enough. And if their mind is weak, like Alexander's, they get way mistreated, says Kirk. Right in front of Alexander. Parman says it's no different for them. The Federation's peace is kept with weapons and fleets of spaceships. At least the Platonians are using their brains. Seemingly bored, Parman dismisses Kirk and Spock, though McCoy is unable to move. He says the other two should go, but they refuse. Fine, says Parman. Hopefully we can convince you to stay of your own accord. McCoy says that won't happen, and now, a number. Parman forces Kirk and Spock into a bit of song and dance, followed by a dramatic reading from Kirk about being Parman's slave. McCoy says he will not stay willingly, and Parman goes back to torturing and manipulating Kirk and Spock, including nearly making Spock crush Kirk's head during a flamenco dance and forcing a range of emotions out of Spock that could end in his madness. Alexander yells that he is ashamed to be a Platonian, so Parman makes him part of the act, forcing him to ride Kirk like a horse. At the height of the humiliation, Parman turns to McCoy and asks McCoy, How can you let this continue? Act 3. Back in their quarters, Spock is in an emotionally catatonic state. Still, he's well enough to worry about Kirk, though he is really messed up. He says Kirk and McCoy need to let go of their hatred of Parman, just as he must learn to master his hatred. Nuts to all this, says McCoy. He'll stay as long as Parman will let everyone else go. Kirk says Parman won't let them go, and Alexander agrees. No one here is getting out alive. Still, the three officers have been a revelation to Alexander. All this time, he thought he deserved the terrible treatment he received at the hands of the other Platonians. They were gods to him. But now, seeing the horrible treatment they've doled out to Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, he knows it's not him. It's them. It's them! He breaks a vase, prepared to scratch Parman, which will, of course, lead to his death. And the death of all of them. Kirk talks him out of it, though. They'll just kill him, too. And what's the point of that? Besides, maybe he can help. They quiz him on when the Plutonians got their powers. A little problem-solving leads to the revelation that it was eating the local vegetation, rich in kyranide, that gave them their psychokinesis. The same condition that led to Alexander's dwarfism also kept him from metabolizing the kyranide, hence no psychokinesis for him. But McCoy can cook up something that'll give all of them the same abilities as Parman and most of his people. So he'll get on that. Wait 30 seconds and he's done? McCoy offers to inject Alexander as well, but he wants none of it. What, become my own enemy? All Alexander wants is to leave Plutonius if the Enterprise does get away. Just then, Nurse Chapel and Lieutenant Uhura are beamed into their quarters and immediately marched by the unseen force of Parman's will out the door. Kirk figures the three men weren't sufficiently entertaining. Act 4. Time for more playtime! 
Kirk, Spock, Uhura, and Chapel are dressed in what passes on 1960s television for ancient Greek garb. Spock and Kirk try to activate their anticipated psychokinesis, but so far, nothing. Also, they're being watched. And soon, they'll be controlled. They are to be performers in a celebration. A celebration of McCoy joining the Platonians, their first new citizen in 2,500 years. Give or take. McCoy says he still hasn't agreed, but shh, it's showtime. Spock is forced to sing. Spock and Chapel are forced to make out, as are Kirk and Uhura. Then the men are forced to start threatening the women with torture, though not before Kirk taunts the Platonians. They are half dead. At least Kirk and his people are alive. Oh, sure, they may be dead tomorrow, but they're alive right now. Alexander's had enough. He grabs a knife and goes to cut Parman. He's spotted, though, and Parman uses his psychokinesis on Alexander to turn the knife on himself. About to stab himself in the stomach, Alexander suddenly stops. Someone has stilled Parman's unseen hand. Kirk's psychokinesis has kicked in. That's right, nobody try anything. Not only do we have your power, we've got a double dose of it. Parman doesn't believe it and sends a knife-wielding Alexander charging at Kirk. Kirk harnesses his power and sends Alexander, knife in hand, back Parman's way. A short game of ping-pong ensues until, yep, Kirk is more powerful. And hey, what do you know? Parman has seen the error of his ways. Please, don't kill me, Captain Kirk. I want to live. Alexander begs Kirk to let him finish Parman off, but Kirk asks, Do you want to be like him? Well, no, but I do want to moralize. I could have had your power, says Alexander, but you are seriously contemptible, and I did not want it. Parman is impressed with Kirk's whole letting them live when they were going to kill him thing. He's ready to turn over a new leaf for his whole society. Or so he says. Kirk and Spock are skeptical, and Parman says, Yeah, you got me. None of us can be trusted. Uncontrolled power will turn even saints into savages, and we can all be counted upon to live down to our lowest impulses. Blah, 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 says Kirk. 2,500 years of not being challenged has not dealt your speech-making ability, but seriously, we will come back and hurt you if you try anything like this ever again. And with that, it's four to beam up. Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and Alexander. The end. So, wait, hang on. They took Alexander with them. Yes, they did. But Kirk could never have been bothered to take any other person that they met who seriously needed the help of Starfleet and or the Federation. I, I, Shauna. Shauna. <laughs> you know, immediately I'm thinking about her. Exactly. Yes. Like, oh, yeah. boy, I can't wait to get off this planet. Yeah, about that. Yeah, see ya. I yeah. mean, don't get me wrong. Alexander is awesome, mm-hmm. but there's like this whole trail. You, you, I mean, like forget breadcrumbs. There's a trail of people all over the galaxy that the Enterprise has encountered and just says, "See ya." Okay. In fair, in fairness, though, there I don't believe that there is a slave that they had left, with the exception of the Gamesters of Triskelion or the, or the Thralls of Triskelion. But all, all, all slaves. But they're right, all they're slaves. all slaves. But you know, Kirk is apparently convinced that. What what he's actually done is he's, you know, turned the gamesters of Triskelion. Why he believes them when they're like, oh, man, have we been jerks? But we'll be better now. <laughs> Kirk's like, okay, well, then bye. And, you know, right. keep, keep all these people. You know, somebody actually brought something really wonderful up on Twitter recently. Um, What's that? They just left the Andorian on Triskelion. Yeah, right. I saw that. <laughs> he doesn't belong there. What the heck? Yeah. yeah. So maybe that would have been a nice thing for them to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nah, Alexander, though, I mean, there's yeah, there's... There's real potential in Alexander. He's not going to change that whole society. And in fact, I mean, even if even if Parman and his people are good people from from then on, mm-hmm. uh, it's still no place for Alexander. He needs to go no. someplace where you know people won't be tempted to mistreat him because of who he is or how he is. I don't think he's found it in the Federation, but we'll we'll get to that in a little bit. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I think I noticed that you know in this episode, I kept thinking you've got part. You know, you mix a part of Talosians, you mix one part of Apollo, throw in a little dash of the gamesters, a hint of Trelane, and then we get, what, uh, guys on robes with telekinesis. You see, I thought the answer was Q. No? <laughs> well, you, I, I think you have to have more than a hint of Trelane to get Q. All right. Yeah. You, you have to have, uh, yeah. You, yeah. You have to have it about a quart. You have to have about a quart of Trelane to get a Q. All right. I don't know. I need to use one of those programs that does conversions so I can get the Trillane to Q ratio. 
<laughs> Read the book. Um, okay. Uh, yeah, right. right. <clears throat> um, some cool things in this episode. A lot of cool things in this episode. Um, I, I thought that there was a, an interesting moment for Spock. There, there was kind of a character change. His realization in that conversation uh, that neither completely expressing nor completely repressing emotions is realistic or viable. Uh, that, that was kind of a moment for him, I thought. Now, I, I don't expect to see that turn up again in any episode of TOS. Yeah, it won't be until The Voyage Home, I think, <laughs> that we'll actually no, hear no, that no, no, discussed no. again. Uh, well, yeah, okay, Voyage Home. How do you I, feel? That, yeah. How do you feel? That uh, question makes no sense. Um, you see, the thing is, you say it's a revelation for Spock, but wasn't it Kirk who said that? Spock was like, yeah, boy, do you hate Farman like I hate Farman? And uh-huh. and Kirk's like, yeah, I do. And and Spock's like, yeah, you got to let that go because I got a mastermind because, wow, <laughs> I really hate that guy. And Kirk's right. like, well, it just means that nothing's perfect. I mean, so it was really, I mean, it was Kirk's revelation. Yes, Spock was maybe grasping for it, but yeah. it was a little bit of a Kirk speech. There are many Kirk speeches, many, M-I-N-I. There, yeah. there are also many, but there are many Kirk speeches uh, throughout this. They're like sprinkles. They are. <laughs> Every now and then you just come across something, you're like, oh, it's, should I be eating? Oh, no, that's okay, yeah. It's time for another delicious Kirk speech. Yeah, exactly. yeah, I like that. In the donut yeah, you, of the show, there are there are you know sprinkles of Kirk speech throughout. You could kind of cobble them all together and get the giant Kirk speech, but he he's got some good oration uh, going on there. I have to say, um, it, you know, interesting because uh, we we've talked about this before when uh, I mentioned the. Uh, we kind of get away from like the ghost stories and all that. And we come up with naturalistic explanations for things here. We have it again. I, there's a moment where Parman says that, yep, we showed up on this planet. And then what do you know, by divine providence, we have magic powers. And, and Kirk's like, no, it's the food. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, can we talk about, uh, can we actually just for a second? Can we talk about, okay. So they were on a planet uh, and I forgot to name the sun. Cause I can't remember the name of the sun, Solana, something like that. Um, so the, the sun, uh, Solana, the star Solana went supernova, but before that happened, they left that planet and they went to earth and they right. got there around the time of Plato. Yeah. And that was really cool. But then, uh, Greek civilization fell so right. they, they left for another planet. So what happened to all of that technology? What happened to that ability? What happened to that get up and go? Oh, yeah. <laughs> because they, yeah were even, they, they had to get there somehow. Right. Well, and they yeah. did. There's like, yeah, yeah you yeah. know, so we went to Earth and that was great for a while, but then pff, sucked. So we left, you know, and came <laughs> right. here and they stayed there long enough to gain superpowers from being there. Right. It just, it struck me as kind of odd. Like, so like, so there are Greeks and there's Greek civilization, and then Greek civilization starts to fall, and so they go to another planet to start Greek civilization. Why not just fix the Greek civilization they already had? Maybe <laughs> right. use their their superior technical power. You yeah, know, maybe, maybe the spaceship they used to get there. Maybe, maybe that one, or the spaceship that they're going to use to go someplace else. And by right. the way, what happened to that spaceship? Yeah, yeah. Well, what know. happened? And they only well, took, they only took three months worth of food too. That was the other thing. That's how much oh, they had right. when they got there. Right. Yeah, don't think too much about that, I guess. Maybe that's no. maybe I shouldn't have even asked any of those questions. Here's another thing to not think of. Hmm. Um, those beings that left Earth a couple of thousand years ago, they, they must have left uh, like a transmitter. They must be getting radio or something because they speak English now. They don't speak Greek. Uh, they throw in a little French when it sounds good, and they quote Lewis Carroll. <laughs> so... So your Greek civilization was great, but how about those Alice adventures, huh? Yeah. Those are great, too. Hey, can I ask another question? I don't think this is ever answered. I've, I've been sort of laboring under the um, idea, and mm-hmm. it occurs to me now that it may be a misconception. So are these people, they're not getting the longevity from the Kiranide. They're only getting the psychokinetic power from the Kiranide, right? They're long-lived anyway, because they're yeah. able to go from one planet to another and live through a whole civilization and then go from that planet to another planet, right? Right, right. Okay. That's the impression that I okay, got. Okay, because I was confused. I was thinking it was the Kiranite that was doing that, and then I was like, well, then they should have gotten to this planet at least 90 years old. But right. yeah, you're right. Yeah. You're right. They uh, That must have been. Huh. No, mm-hmm. no, though. She says she says that she was 30 when she stopped aging. Oh, stopped aging. Uh, you're absolutely right. Yes. What, so yes. Were, they like, were they like babies when, when they were visiting Greece? <laughs> 
huh. maybe, maybe maybe a year means something different. The uh, list to them. the list of things that we need to not think about with this episode. Actually, it's just Very getting long. longer and longer. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we. By should. the way, speaking of that moment, I love her asking, "How old do you think that I am?" Yeah. Don't worry, you want to offend Spock? Boom, thirty-five. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. It's a trap. <laughs> Nailed it. It's a trap. Yeah. How old do you think I am? Don't worry, I won't be offended. Go on. How old do you think I am? Go low. <laughs> it just and, and Spock having to because that's the one thing. It, it's the actor. Leonard Nimoy reading this clever moment in the script, mm-hmm. but then deciding how clever Spock is being by doing that. Right. You know, I, it's, uh, I love moments like that. Um, what I also love is that uh, Nurse Chapel got some makeup tips from Natira once they left the asteroid ship, Yonada, because when she shows up uh, with all the rest of the Platonians, she's got Natira's eye makeup. So good for her. Uh, at least everything is educational. And um, I have to say that th- this episode is kind of a good case against the idea of developing telekinetic powers. Um, because you know, if you're a materialist like I am, you know, the, the mind is the brain, the brain is the mind. Um, they show pretty early on that Parman, because he's losing his mind, can't control his powers either. So, uh, and you think about the the heavy incidents of, uh, you know, dementia, Alzheimer's, all these terrible brain disorders that are associated with aging. Uh, if we had telekinesis, we would be in big, big trouble. So maybe, you know, that's another reason that Kirk says that he, there, everybody on earth is very happy without the powers. Thank you very much. Yeah. That's just Kirk being Kirk though. It is Kirk being Kirk, but you <laughs> think about it. It's very much Kirk being Kirk. Oh, no, we're happy. Well, okay, captain of a starship, you're happy. <laughs> Let's go below decks and ask somebody there. Let's ask the guy who's been scrubbing, you know, is there a latrine on the Enterprise? We've never actually addressed that. But let's talk to the guy who's you know been scrubbing the latrine on the Enterprise for quite a while now. Maybe he would be happy with telekinesis or, or psychokinesis. He, he stayed behind on the spore planet. He's <laughs> like, see you guys. I'm, I'm staying here. After two and a half seasons, I'm not sure which is a worse sign for the crew of the Enterprise, Dancing Spock, or Smiling Spock. Well, I guess I'm just going to dive straight in and do the hit you over the head message with this uh, episode. And uh, you had a lot more subtle stuff. I honestly had one of those uh, episodes where I was like, well, I really can't see past that one thing. Well, with a, with a touch of another thing. Um, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Ta-da! That's it. <laughs> right. They show up and they're platonic. I love the fact that uh, the, the fact that um, Alexander says, uh, Parman calls us Plato's children, although we sometimes think of ourselves as Plato's stepchildren. Mm-hmm. I, love, I love that, and I love the insinuation there, because uh, I, I was a stepchild, and I was a stepchild, uh, you know, rather poorly treated by one of my step-parents. Mm. Not 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 anything like Alexander is, but if you are a stepkid or if you've, you know, I, I know more stepkids who have had issues with their stepparents than have not. And sure, so there, there's right. something a little loaded about his saying that that I think is absolutely fantastic. Um, I, you know, you got to figure that Parman and his people were actually decent people when they got to uh, Plutonius, which is what they named the planet. A little right. too spot on for me, but okay. <laughs> a little, yeah. Uh, you got to figure they were decent people when they got to Plutonius. And then, you know, once they get, you know, all kinds of like crazy mind power, um, they just go nuts. Now you can argue, okay, is that about their absolute power or is it about, you know, the fact that they were made idle by their absolute power or what? Um, either way, it seems like the absolute power sort of uh, corrupts absolutely here. Now, the dash of extra that I would throw <laughs> in is there is also a bit of a... It was a, just a just a hint of a private little war or a hint of mutually assured destruction, maybe a hint of Dr. Strangelove if you want to. Um, there is no guarantee that Parman's not going to be a jerk the second that they leave, which I think is part of why they took Alexander. And also yeah. because he asked nicely. Um, there's no hint. I mean, there's no guarantee that he's not going to be a jerk when they leave. But Kirk's like, yeah, listen, if you ever try this again, remember, we can come back and hit you twice as hard as you're hitting us. I mean, they're basically there's sort of like a mutually assured stalemate. In a yeah, way, right. it's like, you know, okay, be good. And, and I don't really care if you want to be, 
It's, it's fine with me if you don't, but you better because otherwise we will come back and we will land on you. So I don't know. Those, those are like the, those are like the big things that sort of, uh, to me, you know, jumped out. And I mean, to the point that I had, I had a little bit of trouble seeing uh, just about any other message in the show. Well, yeah, I mean, th- those are the things that are screaming at you. I mean, I, I would still screaming, uh, screaming, <laughs> they're just screaming, yelling at you. At you. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, I, I would still take issue with the idea. Like, if you really want to explore power and corruption in a nuanced way, um, I think you have to get outside the bounds of a 48 minute TV show. I've mentioned before, like when we talked about patterns of force, that, yes, this is a a, a story that we tell in a lot of fiction and, and even reporting on nonfiction, but it is not always quite that clear cut. You know, the, the, there is sort of modern psychology that says, well, that may not necessarily be the case. People don't just become corrupt. Right. But the way that power structures are, it allows people who are corrupt to exploit that blah, blah, blah. But yes, well, th- the, this is a parable kind of about that. Yeah, I was going to yeah. say the key to what you just said, though, is exploring it in a nuanced way. This is not a nuanced no. exploration of <laughs> no. this idea. I mean, this is no, no. this is I mean, this is this is very simple. Absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. And yes, that is debatable. And whether or not that has to happen or why that does happen when it does happen or any of those things that would right. be up for debate. And, you know, in a two, two and a half hour movie, you might have that. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. we're starting with the premise that these guys are all powerful and all powerful is bad. Right. Now watch what right. happens. Um, and you also brought up the uh, mutually assured stalemate kind of thing that happens at the end. Yeah, I, I thought that was interesting because it, the the ending is a little bit of a cop out to me. It's just sort of like, all right, you're going to be good. Yeah. No, really? You're going to be good? Yeah. Okay, we're <laughs> going to check on you if you're not good. Um, yeah, that, that doesn't play quite right to me. And it does feel like, yeah, just now we know your secret. Now we can come back and smack you around if we feel like it. Well, that honestly feels like a better ending to me, though, than the Gamesters of Triskelion. I mean, the Gamesters oh, sure. of Triskelion, sure. Kirk was like, okay, so you're going to be good. You know, and in this one, Kirk's like, you're not going to be good. So here, I'm going to threaten <laughs> right. you because I know you're not going to yeah. be good. Okay, so yeah. understand I will, you know, I'll come back and hit you with something that you're not even going to see coming because I'm not even going to pick it up. It's just going to hit you. You know right. what I mean? He's like, that's, that's, it, it strikes me as a better ending than Gamesters of Triskelion. But again, you know, you're getting to minute 46. You right. know, and right. you got to be like, oh, yeah, well, time for the closing credits. Let's, uh. All right, everybody pack up. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So we have to talk about the interracial kiss because I I felt like before getting into this episode for our purposes here on Mission Log, I just kind of knew this one peripherally as, yeah, it's the one with the interracial kiss. It's the one with Alexander and it's the one with people with telekinesis wearing robes. Mm -hmm. Um, But now we we got to study it a little more and really try to put it into context. Um, And the questions that came up, you know, is it a little bit of a cop-out that they're under alien mind control, that this isn't something that they're just doing of their own volition? Um, And as it has been brought up before, is there some plausible deniability that it even happened? You know, Nichelle says they did. Shatner says they didn't. Kind of hints that they did. Kind of hints that they didn't. They both play a little coy about – well, both. Shatner plays a little coy about it. we do know that Shatner crossed his eyes during the alternate take, so it couldn't be used. And all in all, by the end, the fallout was pretty mild. You know, it was always nearly positive feedback, at least according to the producers and according to Gene Roddenberry. Um, it is worth mentioning, though, that there had already been kisses on air between Caucasian and Asian actors. And as far as between African-American and Caucasian, uh, Sammy Davis Jr., and Nancy Sinatra had a kiss on TV in late 1967. So I feel like this is one of those moments where Star Trek is sort of it is right on that line between being groundbreaking, but also reflecting what is going on. Mm-hmm. You know, it would have been a different thing if Star Trek had been made 10 years before. If this was in 1957, then this episode would not have been seen in 1957. Right. But this is a reflection of kind of where we were as a culture with these boundaries being pushed. Um, I feel like the dialogue during that scene is terrible. Um, And I wanted to ask you your impression. 
was that Uhura speaking or was that the Platonians putting words in her mouth? Um, or, or maybe sort of in between looking deep into her psyche for what was making her tick. Because I just felt like the dialogue was terrible. Um, to me, the dialogue was not uh, a line from Star Trek. To me, honestly, mm-hmm. when I was watching it, I was like, I, and I don't know that this was anybody's intention. I can watch that, though, and have this be a, a race, race relations moment. That, mm-hmm. that is independent of the fact that they're on a TV show or that they're in Star Trek. I mean, there's this African-American woman saying, I'm not afraid. Yeah. Okay, fine. <laughs> I mean, it's <laughs> is it in character? No, I don't think so. But it's okay because what's about to happen, and you can say, you know, well, did they cheat it or did they turn it this way or did they actually kiss or did they not kiss? This is remembered as the interracial kiss. I mean, this is what that is remembered as. And so going into that moment... And people knowing that that was going to happen on this episode, going into that moment for that woman to say, for any African-American woman or any African-American at that point to say, this doesn't scare me. I'm okay with it. I mean, is Mm. is it kludgy? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a little kludgy. But if we're going to say that this is a historic moment on television, then for the character who is taking part in that historic moment on television, I mean, it's interesting that you're telling me that Shatner's the one that crossed his eyes. He's not the one that really had as much to worry about, it seems to me, potentially. Right. Um. And yet, you know, what we have Uhura's character saying going into or what we have Nichelle Nichols saying going into this historic moment, a historic television moment is this is happening and I'm not I'm not I'm not scared. Yeah, well, all right. Yeah, I'll kind of take that. I mean, I I feel like the show still pulled its punches in, in many ways. Sure. And they, you know, they 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 got it in there. And good on them yeah. for, for getting it in there. Right. But, yeah, it, it, I think watching it, maybe it's the problem of watching it in retrospect now nearly 50 years after the fact. <laughs> right. Yeah. Where, where this is a common thing to see on TV. Right. Um, we, we pick it apart for the wrong reasons, you know. What do you mean? But. I'm, well, I mean, well, I mean, we, I mean we pick. Put it back. I mean, put it back in that time, though, or put yourself back in that time. I mean, it would have been groundbreaking. Yeah. Maybe it wasn't the first time it happened, but it was one of the first few times. I mean, the fact that you can go back and name two other times that it happened before <laughs> oh, right. indicates yeah, that right. this was not the most common thing in the world, right? Yeah, and again, no, even course. today, we've yes. had even today we've had emails from people who are like, "I don't want to think when I'm watching Star Trek. I just want to watch yeah. Star Trek." <laughs> right. You know, so there would have been a lot of people who would right. have watched that and gone. Hey, wait a minute. This is challenging my beliefs. And all I really wanted to see was, you know, guys with lasers. So, right. I don't know. I mean, it's, I think if you put yourself back in that time, then even the goofiness of the dialogue, you know, is forgivable, especially because there's so much goofy dialogue on Star Trek all through the original series. So, I mean, this is no more goofy than a lot of it that we've come across before. Uh, I, think, I think it's pretty goofy. Right. <laughs> I think it's, I'm, I'm saying, yeah. you know, it gets in line. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know what was really hard to take though. Yeah. In, in that scene is not it, right after that the torture mm-hmm. that occurs right away. This is one of the episodes that, um, at least in the UK, they didn't show it until the nineties because of the torture scene, and, and not just that, but of course, kind of how Alexander is beat up during this. You know, they said it's these heavy masochistic elements going on here. Yeah. Again, um, the torture, it feels to me like is implied. I mean, we see the whip crack in front of Uhura's face, but we never actually Mm -hmm. see her hit. Spock is certainly going toward Chapel with the branding iron or with the with the hot poker, but he never actually gets to her with that. It's reminiscent, again, of the Gamesters of Triskelion in that, I mean, we know something bad has happened to Uhura when the whole thing is off camera. And of course, then they they totally pull that punch and say, okay, nothing happened. I mean, they tell right. you nothing happened, but I mean, you know when it's happening that something is actually happening. Um, yeah, well, it, that's what I mean. I mean, it, 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 we, even without seeing a whip hit somebody, mm-hmm. it, it was an intense scene. Yeah, and, it was. And, and it, it was a very intense scene. But just like you think, maybe they yeah. pulled their punch with the kiss. They they pulled the punch with the abuse as well. It's. I mean, don't get, don't misunderstand me. I'm glad they sure, did yeah, first yeah. of all, and second, it still managed right, to be sure. incredibly dark, especially when you've got. Um, Falana, you know, sitting there getting all hot and bothered by the whole thing and asking for asking for uh, Parman to, you know, cut to the death scene. I mean, she she she's there to watch a snuff film. 
I mean, sorry, not to be so mm-hmm. not to be so mm-hmm. horrible about it, but that's sort of what no, she's there for. And, so, and yeah. she actually says to Parman, "Get on with it. Let's just go ahead and finish this." And Parman, on the other hand, is sort of getting off on watching the whole thing happen. And so you know, he urges her to be a bit more patient. It's a really it's a it's an right. incredibly dark episode. Yeah, it, it is very much so. Yeah. yeah. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit because you mentioned something earlier in jest about the Platonians, you know, being able to travel from planet to planet. Yeah. And then just sort of stopping with ancient Greece. And and I, I like this idea of exploring their utopia. And, and this is a failed utopian vision in this show. Um, once again, Ken, there is no paradise, uh, according to uh, Star Trek in this case. Yeah. Lisa has been corrupted and abused. Sorry. Um, but what I thought was interesting is the idea that they stopped themselves with the ancient Greek ideal with absolutely no progress outside of that. You know, spaceship, we're leaving that behind. We're, we're doing the ancient Greek thing. This is how we dress. This is how our art will look. It will have the philosopher king. And we'll just sit around thinking all day. Yeah. Uh, at least according to Alexander. Oh, they're in their chambers. They're just contemplating, you know. And I, I do not mean this in any sort of uh, mocking or flippant way. But I was thinking about sort of like the Amish and a lot of the Mennonite uh, groups in the U.S. sort of picking an arbitrary moment in time to say, this defines us, this is who we will be, and shut out everyone else as best as possible, mm-hmm. you know, um, that that you actually have to go to some effort to know and understand what is out there, what what is part of the out group, so then you can maintain what the in group is all about. Um, and, you know, why, why the Amish would pick a late 19th century agrarian culture with some ability to use some technology but not others, um, I... I couldn't help but think about that looking at the Platonians just saying like well we really like this it's one thing to just like the idea of the philosophy of the Greeks but we're going to go at it whole hog and we're going to physically design our lives to resemble that as well and maybe there's something to it maybe there's something to the the physicality being related to the uh the philosophical expression of that um but yeah, that's what kind of what popped into my mind. Um, hmm. Although it was interesting that the, the Platonians hold ancient Greek, uh, ancient Greek philosophy in such high regard, but then they readily admit that they had to modify it a little, <laughs> you know. And to me, this is sort of another lesson about dogma or or blind faith. It's like we can we can justify the terrible things that we do, like torturing Alexander. Um, like doing all these things because, well, we, we like our philosophy, but we're going to bend it a little. You know, it's one of those times in Star Trek where power forgets to temper itself with compassion. You know, all those things seem to turn up in Star Trek over and over again for me. Um, and I, I thought they were well played out here. Yep. It, it gave me something to chew on. You know, it's interesting too. Uh, forgive me because I'm thinking about your whole thing about why do they mm-hmm. get, why do they stick themselves with the Greeks or with that you know sort mm-hmm. of that sort of look. Mm-hmm. That's shorthand for smart guy on Star Trek. Think about it, think like the Metreon, oh, of course, and uh, and um, yeah, and uh, not Metreon, Metron. And uh, the Metrons, yeah, Baylock, yeah. even to an extent. I mean, he's walking around yeah. with sort of that thing on his head, and you know, wearing sort of the robes. I mean, it's that's that's it's it's like a shorthand kind of deal. Because I'm I'm trying to figure out. You say you're thinking about it, and you're wondering why. And the only thing I can think of is that because that is that's the stand-in for Egghead on Star Trek. I mean, if, if we had. <laughs> right, right. You know, if if people still needed like the heavy, you know, dark rimmed glasses and the lab coat, then that's what they would be on Star Trek. But of course, mm-hmm. three hundred years from now, nobody needs glasses anymore, except of course for Kirk because he's allergic to retinox. But um, it's it, it's it's sort of I mean, this is this is the ideal, and so this is shorthand for the ideal. When we come across these people, we know okay, well, this is somebody who either who's either totally on the ball or thinks they're totally on the ball, but they're flawed somehow. I mean, there's a it's yeah. just a uh, it's just sort of a uh, it's a, it's like shorthand for enlightened in a way or somebody who uh, thinks know, they are anyway. 
And it's not just a Star Trek thing. You see that in sci-fi everywhere. Yeah. I, you just see a lot of robes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's a lot of robes in sci-fi. Yeah. I, you know, and, and sometimes it, it, a lot of it has to do with this uh, trope of like ancient wisdom. Yeah. You know, you, you, you look at the Jedi or yeah. something like that. A lot of robes. Yeah, the uh, and the uh, Battlestar Galactica, the the seventies series, not the not the reboot, not the Ronald yeah. Moore, uh, had a bit right. of that as well. Yeah, yeah, robes and capes. You know, <laughs> I, I'm waiting for a time when the uh, the super advanced intellectuals will look so far, but you know, a thousand years in the future, they're going to say, "Boy, you know, what we should do to look smart is uh, we should wear uh, board shorts and sandals. That'll really be the uh, that'll be the look." Later, Hosen. <laughs> Later, Hosen. Yes, yeah, yeah. Hey, um, I do want to talk about Alexander a bit as well, um, because it, there's a lot going on there. Um, as a a little person depicted in this show, he is solid. He's very complex, mm-hmm. and he's played for our identification which is great. He's not the two-dimensional buffoon. And they really do that right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. He, he comes out and, and he says who he is, and, and it is a bit of you know, clunky expository dialogue, but that's okay. But, but you immediately identify with what's going on, that something's wrong here, and that whoever else is behind this is who we have to look out for. Um, so as a character, I thought he was well-developed, well-written. Um, we kind of have to give a shout-out here to... Um, the real life influence on noted Star Trek fan Dan Madsen. He ran uh, the official Star Trek fan club for decades. Um, he is a little person. He was contacted by Gene Roddenberry in 1982 to create the official Star Trek fan club. Uh, he talks about how in 1979 he saw the motion picture and was just so overwhelmed he started cranking out these newsletters and and that got the attention of Gene Roddenberry, got the attention of Paramount, uh, Paramount and they contacted him. Um, but he often refers to Alexander as this depiction of a strong character who influenced him because he here is a guy whose size didn't matter in terms of his importance. And we have to mention, and I realize that it's been discussed over and over again, that Kirk line to Alexander, it it, it has almost become one of those things in Star Trek that gets parodied. It's like when Star Trek is really preaching at you (laughs) about what the future is going to be like. But the line is, where I come from, size, shape, or color make no difference. It it, it could be eye-rolling. It could be Star Trek just getting preachy. But when I watched it again and again, it felt very profound. You know, Kirk is saying it and it's not Shatner overacting it. Right. Because here's the thing. This is the moment where Star Trek, where where Kirk gets to be the stand in for us and saying this is the ideal that we want to be. You know, hey, hey, America watching this show, this is what we're saying the future could and should be like. So that very simple moment had to touch viewers in 1968. Um, And it will continue to be kind of an important moment as long as we don't live up to that, because we don't. (laughs) You know, we say that we do. We say that we've gotten better. And we have. And we have. Um, but it, it's still presenting this sort of uh, uh, ideal, you know. Um, why, are you, why are you giggling back what's there? What's our email address? Mission, Mission log, log at Roddenberry.com. At Roddenberry.com, yeah. Put in subject line, uh, Ken, so that we'll know that this is directed to me. You say okay. this is going to be an important line throughout Star Trek, only until the very end of the episode. The, the line in Who Mourns for Adonai is a big line. Uh, and and that line sort of takes away from a lot that happens in that episode, and it also takes away from a lot that happens in Star Trek overall. The line, of mm-hmm. course, being the, you know, we find the one God sufficient. Yeah. Kirk has delivered this wonderful idea, this wonderful ideal to Alexander. Where I come from, size, shape, or color make no difference. And that's really neat. And you're right, we do want to get there. End of the episode. Hey, Scotty, I've got a little surprise. <laughs> Oh, God. Oh, no. I just wish they had stopped before they did that, because here's the thing. What we've said to Alexander this whole time is, really, it's not going to matter. Oh, we're still going to make fun of you. We're still going to joke about your stature, but 
really, we're better. I mean, we are. I mean, come on. We're not, we're not going to beat you, mm-hmm. but we are going to make fun of you. I mean, it, to me, that was sort of, I mean, I love the idea. You're right. If they had just not done that last line, if they had just even said to Scotty, four to beam up. And you get like yeah. this, you know, this like recognition or something from Alexander that he is going to a place where he is going to be accepted. Right. Right. Instead, what you get is yeah, you're still going to take a little crap. Oh, man. You just killed it for me. Sorry, dude. I didn't. It's, <laughs> and that's that's why I say put put my name in the email if you want to respond to that, because because I mean, it made me sad and it made me sad to see it. And it made me sad not to just be able to laugh at it, though, because the whole time, you know, Kirk's telling him this is going to be awesome for you. Not totally awesome. Yeah, <laughs> let's be clear, right. but it'll be better. I yeah. don't know. It, it, that 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 part kind of bummed me out. If if we could have just had Kirk saying that and then not had him say something stupid later to negate it, oh, I, yeah, then I would have yeah. been excited. But uh, as it is now, it's just sort of like oh, and and I'm I'm holding back on saying a bunch of other stuff. By the way, <laughs> oh gosh, sorry. Oh. I didn't mean to upset you, dude. Now I feel like I really. <laughs> it's all right. Are you okay? Do we need a minute? I'm okay. I'm okay. I think this moment will pass. It's okay. (laughs) Holy cow. Ken really bumped John out. I hope he's okay. John, if I had half the power of Leonard Nimoy, I would write you a song right now to make up for what I did in the last segment. I'm sorry, dude. I am. It's okay. I am so sorry about that. You know, it just goes back to uh, to show what we've talked about many times is our, our selective memories about Star Trek. I, I selectively recorded the hit, which was Kirk's moment with Alexander, <laughs> and selectively remembered the miss which was the joke at his expense. <laughs> you see, the cool thing about me is I have no memory at all. People think that when we introduce each other at the beginning of the episode that we're introducing ourselves to them. <laughs> no, we have to write yeah. it down for yeah. each of us. Yeah, yeah. I, I, every, every time I'm like, and you are again, and I would know you from. <laughs> you yeah. got to take notes. Memento. See, I've got this condition. Okay. I, I, I am told from the notes on my page that this is the part of the show where we, you know, uh, come together and ask a few questions like, um, you know, how did this episode do and what were the messages in the episode and did the episode hold up? Mm. And um, it looks like from what I've written here, I'm going to throw that question to you. Uh, John, does Plato's stepchildren as an episode of Star Trek uh, hold up? Oh, well, thank you for remembering my name in the, uh, in the intro there. Um, You know what? This to me has the opposite of the problem that I had with the Tholian web. So remember when I said with Fatholian Web? <laughs> wait, that, wait, let me stop you there. Nope. Yep. No. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll remind you, Ken. Okay. Uh, the the thing with Fatholian Web is that that show is so iconic because of its visuals and because of a few key moments. But then when you add it all up together, I felt like it just didn't hold up. Um, the, the pacing is bad. It's just kind of a drag in many places. It's inconsistent. The motivations aren't well thought out. Blah, 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 blah. Um, I feel like with Plato's stepchildren, it's kind of the opposite. So the iconic images of the show and just the theatrics of it, uh, putting our characters into togas and uh, the playing the lyre and the dancing and all this stuff it, it, it is really over the top and it overwhelms what is otherwise a very well-told story with some meaty ideas. So it does not hold up stylistically. It does not necessarily hold up just as a piece of Star Trek, but I feel like the writing really kind of does. I, um, I was ready to kind of count this episode off and just say, like, yeah, as I said before, it's one where we have the kiss and we got robes and we got the little person and we got telekinesis. But I found myself more interested in the show every time I watched it. How about you? Yeah, I actually didn't mind the dancing and singing as much as you Mm. did. uh, Honestly, Mm. we've seen that uh, done poorly. We've seen that wreck an episode, in my personal opinion, like an I mud I felt like when they were doing that, they were doing that to be goofy and I'm mud. 
there was no there was nothing tongue in cheek about it being done here, and yet you yeah. know that it's nothing that they would ever do, and so that makes the level of control that Parman has over them. Um, I mean, just really, you know, huge at that point. I mm-hmm. feel like if we we may have actually skipped one part that maybe we shouldn't have. Um, no, sir. I well, I I I complain all the time about how there is no. Um, there's no story arc with characters. There's no growth with characters. There's no, you know, um, one thing does not matter from one week to the next with characters. Mm-hmm. Chris, Christine Chapel started off in love with Spock and she is still in love with Spock. And, yeah. and it's kind of an interesting yeah. thing because we don't get that kind of consistency with anybody else. I mean, from one week to the next, yeah, Kirk was in love. Kirk wasn't in love. McCoy had a wife two weeks ago. Was it two oh, weeks right. ago? I can't remember. Right. And Kirk yeah. had a wife six weeks ago. And, you know, none of that's ever going to matter again. And we're going to find out in the movie that it turns out there was this woman we didn't even know about. And he had a kid Mm -hmm. with her. And how did that happen? (laughs) Chapel's been in love the whole time. Um, And that it was neat to see that again. I mean, that goes back to a mock time and even, you know, episodes before that. Uh, For Uhura to say what she said to Kirk felt a little tacked on. I mean, because we haven't gotten that sense. And certainly it would make sense. I mean, you know, somebody's in power. You're going to see them. And every now and then you're going to think, well, eh," you know. But I mean, it was it was just interesting to see that happen with Chapel. So that's another that's another pip that I'll give it, you know, in sort of like a in sort of right. a positive way. Well, um, I, I, the darkness of it. I'm sorry to answer to answer yeah, your yeah. question. The darkness of this episode um, is a little unexpected. I mean, yeah. there are things that are always supposed to be dark, you know, like uh, Sylvia and Korob or or Spock's brain, or you know, there's there are things that are supposed to be dark. And then you get moments like when Chekhov cornered that woman in the hall. Um, I can't remember who it was now. I felt terrible. But you oh, get, Mara in um, yeah in the Enterprise. Hence. No, yeah. no, no, I'm sorry. In Day of the Dove. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So, so you like, you get you get a moment like that, or you get like the scene that we don't see from the Gamesters of Triskelion. Uh, yeah. It's so rare that you get moments of like true darkness. Usually, what you get is oh, look, it's dark. You know, as, <laughs> as opposed right. to just like you're watching something all of a sudden you're like, wow, I want out of my skin right now. Mm-hmm. Um, there are moments like that in this episode that uh, that really make it um, surprisingly um, effective uh, nearly 50 years later. So well, I mean, my personal feeling is, yeah, this episode way holds up. Uh, you know, there are a couple of things you have to let go of, yeah, like the fashion and things like that. But um, yeah, I, I feel like it holds up beautifully. Well, well, that's just it. If you look at it through the the, the eyes of just considering it as a TV production. Mm-hmm. I think that's what I meant. It's sort of the, the theatrical feel of it, not just the dancing and the liars and all that stuff, but, but the set is, well, let's just use the word cheap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. it, this is third season, Star Trek. We're on a shoestring budget. We're doing the best we can. So it, it's all very, very minimal. Sometimes minimal plays very well as it did in Spectre of the Gun. Yep. Here, not quite as effective because this is supposed to be a real environment, not an imagined environment. So it, in those many ways, it feels dated and stilted and like it doesn't hold up. As Star Trek, um, when we, we start to look at the story and the characters and the ideas, Yes, it, it holds up incredibly well. So um, I, I was glad to kind of rediscover this episode and go beyond just the simple things that people remember it for. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about messages. Uh, what, uh, you know, you, you kind of hit it right out of the park right at the beginning. It, it's, you know, the corruptive nature of power and then the stalemate that we end up with. Um, do you want to add to that? No. I mean, that's, I mean, that's, it, it, I didn't feel like it could be more mm-hmm. spot on. Like I said before, I mean, it's absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. seems to be, well, I, it, maybe that's not even the message. I mean, maybe that's just a given, maybe that's just a given in this episode. And so then we're supposed to try to figure out how we work around that or work through it. I don't know. Cause I mean, we're only given to understand. I mean, we only know that there are, you know, they value Plato because they say so, right? We don't right. actually see that. We don't see absolute power corrupt them. It's possible that they were jerks <laughs> right. before. They may have even led to the fall of the Greek civilization as far as we know. So, I mean, right. maybe maybe it's actually selling the episode short to say, well, the message is absolute power corrupts absolutely because we don't know that that is what happened to these people. If we take them at face value, though, I mean, it seems like that has to be the message. And yet... 
we don't even see that message illustrated. It's just it's just kind of handed to us. Like, well, mm-hmm. well, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Well, of course I do. Okay. Well, then I, let, I think, let's, yeah. let's watch it happen to these people or let's watch yeah. you know, these people after 2,500 years of that. Yeah. I, I think that's the problem with that part of the message is that it is just handed out as a given. And usually when uh, when a story does that, I immediately want to pick it apart. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. sort of a, a knee-jerk reaction to that kind of thing. Um, I think those are good whether you agree or disagree with the premise, I think those are good ideas to contemplate over this episode. And, and they, they present them in an entertaining way. I, I think almost more importantly is the idea here, the de-emphasis on revenge. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Kirk's line to Alexander, do you want to be like him? He's got to disarm Alexander and he's got to fight through his own rage and anger as you said spock asks him are you angry he's like yes i'm angry i'm let's go back to a taste of armageddon i'm still a barbarian remember yeah you know um and after all revenge leads to the dark side um if i make my second star wars reference here in an episode of mission log um you know kirk may be a barbarian who chooses not to kill today but he's preaching those benefits of not acting impulsively and out of revenge for every transgression. So Alexander has an arc here as well. They wisely take him out of the situation. Yeah. Um, but, but Alexander is one who learns that violence is not the answer and just completely following my impulse is not the answer. And we kind of saw that the way the society is structured. He says, well, if that, if that, balance of power is tipped to quote another episode of star trek all the other people here all the other platonians know that they would be fighting over that seat of power you know it's a vicious cycle can a terrible vicious cycle uh do those messages hold up are you asking me yeah, I'm asking you and I'm asking rhetorically. I think they do. Well, I think those messages do hold up. I mean, it's it's kind of interesting <sighs> Especially by the time you get to season three. I mean, what's weird is you've got something like uh, the Corbomite maneuver, right? Mm-hmm. Where you see them really struggle with that idea. You see them, you know, struggle with it. Are we going to go back and help this guy? Seriously, we're going to go back and help him. He was going to kill us and we're going to go back mm-hmm. and help him. And it's only Kirk who's like, oh, yeah, of course we are uh, because that's who we are. That's who we are. That's what right. we do. That's who we say we want to be. So that's who we're going to be. Maybe it's because uh, maybe it's because Gene Roddenberry wasn't as, vo- as involved in the writing, or maybe it's because we've heard it so many times. But at this point, when we get to the part where it's like, "Yep, yeah, I'm not going to kill him, though, because I'm better than that, or I want right. to be better than that," I'm kind of getting bored with that message, which may sound, <laughs> which may sound terrible. I mean, it's, what's what's really great is there is still a wonderful morality about season three, despite all the stuff that you hear about how terrible season three is, and it's certainly the weakest. Of the three seasons, that's, you know, Mm -hmm. spoiler alert, doesn't get much better. (laughs) Um, It's, I mean, (sighs) they're becoming standard messages in a way. And I kind of, I I guess I kind of wish, I I miss seeing people grapple with them. Yeah. yeah. Which we're not getting anymore. But at the same time, yeah, of course that message, you would hope that message holds up. We don't always see it today. I mean, 50 years later. And, you know, who knows what we'll see 300 years later. But, um yeah, I definitely want that message to hold up. I guess I, I kind of wish it was. I don't know. I wish we. I wish. I wish it was a little harder to get to. I mean, Kirk's. I mean, we we joked about the mini Kirk speeches. Kirk's got mm. the Kirk speech down at this point. There's yeah, there's there's right. very little. I mean, if if um, what was the um, oh, the one with Shakespeare. Like, yeah, there's one with Shakespeare. There's one. <laughs> yeah, the, the the guy. Uh, Conscience of the King with Con- our old yes. Kodos, the executioner. Yes, yeah. thank you very much. Yes, uh-huh. uh, if if Kodos had shown up in season three, Kirk's not even thinking about killing him. Kirk's and nobody's ever going to question that because you know Kirk's got the Kirk speech down at that point. Right. right. I mean, uh, Shatner's not even reading that part of the script anymore. <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, oh, it says Kirk speech. Oh, okay, yeah, I, I can do that. Yeah, I got that down. <laughs> Um, so I, I guess I kind of missed that a little bit, but yeah, the the message itself holds up, sure. All right, interesting. Well, if you guys agree or disagree or have your own thoughts about this episode or any other episode of Mission Log Pod, we'd love to hear from you. 
Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. Our handle is Mission Log Pod at all three. Again, Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. You can call us 323-522-5641. You can even email us missionlog at roddenberry.com. And please check out our homepage on the website. Let me take that over again. <laughs> You can email us at missionlog at roddenberry.com, and you can check out our very nice home on the internet, missionlogpodcast.com. Remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Sad though it is to part, friends, fear not. Next week, we'll be back in the wink of an eye. Some of the music for the mission log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. The wink of an eye thing. That was going to be my joke. So. Okay. And transmission. Now leaving Nerdist.com.